Hello and welcome to another BICOM podcast. My name is Khaled Bendor. I'm a senior research associate at BICOM and I'm very, very pleased to be joined uh, by, by Giddy Greenstein. Giddy is many, many things. Um, he is an Israeli societal entrepreneur. He is the founder of the Reut Group, formerly the Reut Institute, which I was very, very uh, happy and pleased to, to, to be a part of. When I first moved to Israel, Giddy gave me my first job. I don't want to say had he not given me the job, I'd be waiting tables, um, but it was certainly a very uh, significant professional uh, opportunity for me, which I'm, I'm grateful for until today. Uh, Giddy helped to found uh, Tom Tikkun Olam Makers, uh, and, and he's also uh, the author. He's the author of a couple of books. Most recently, one about it's called Insights, and it's also about um, the Oslo process and its significant and its significance and its consequences. Giddy was also when when he was younger, he was the secretary of the Israeli negotiating team. So when in our conversation, Giddy brings a huge amount of different angles. We're going to be discussing Israel's operation in Gaza today, but in some ways we could be discussing many, many things, and Giddy would have interesting and um, significant things to say about it. So after that longish introduction, uh, Giddy, thank you for being with us today. Kalev, thank you so much for inviting me, and it's good to reconnect with you. Yes, it Again. is. Thank you. I should, I should just say for listeners, we originally, in a pre-October the 7th world, uh, had planned to speak about Giddy's new book, Insights, which again, I very much recommend, but it's impossible to speak about anything other than the current um, the current operation or the current war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. Um, straight after October the 7th, uh, Israel put some uh, quite strong and I'd say even ambitious goals of destroying Hamas militarily and politically. At a certain stage, bringing the hostages back was was then kind of added on, and it was it was considered that the in, in some ways the only way to do that was to have a ground incursion into Gaza, which would which would topple Hamas. Giddy, you've you've kind of got some some uh, I'd say alternative thinking to the mainstream on this. When you heard those kind of political and military goals and the and the assumption that the only way of doing that is via a grand incursion. I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on that? I think that in every uh, national security crisis, the political military interface, meaning the relationship between the political level and the military level, is of crucial importance because the military can only succeed when it is given concrete and tangible goals. Um, so initially, when uh, immediately after the you know the savage attack, the the massacre that happened on October seven, some of the goals that the military uh, that some of the goals that the political leadership discussed was to eliminate Hamas or to uh, topple Hamas in Gaza and uh, obviously to destroy the military and government capabilities of Hamas. Now these are totally different goals because eliminating Hamas deals with eliminating an ideological movement that has deep social roots in Palestinian society, um, not only in Gaza, but also in the West Bank. And it's connected to the Muslim Brotherhood movement that is across the Middle East and even in Europe and other places around the world. So um, this is obviously not an attainable goal. Meanwhile, if we're talking about significantly compromising the military capabilities of Hamas, that is 
clearly an attainable goal. So my perspective and my input was always, let's crystallize the goals and make sure that they are attainable. Second, the prevailing mindset was that the worst possible thing is that Hamas remains in power in Gaza. And I thought that, of course, Hamas remaining in power in Gaza is a huge threat. And it's a definite goal of this war, political goal of the war uh, that we are waging against Hamas is that they are not in power after the war. But there could be worse things for us. For example, if this war spills over and destabilizes the peace treaty with Egypt or the stability in Jordan, meaning if we're moving from a crisis in one theater around Gaza to a crisis in additional theaters, including in, uh, in Jordan and in Egypt, and if there is a collapse of the Abraham Accords, for example, that would be uh, a national security outcome that is far worse than continuing to contend with some form of Hamas in Gaza. Okay, and where would the, where does a military incursion um, sit with you? As in, the, the assumption is, even if even if there are clear political goals, let's say to weaken Hamas, is the, the best way, the most effective way, the only way of doing that via um, a, a ground incursion, in your, in your opinion? So the ground incursion here is inevitable, some, at least in some form. But we now know what is the goal of the government. The goal of the government of, the, of Israel is to eliminate the military and government capabilities of Hamas. And I'm all for that if there is an exit strategy, which I don't see right now. The only viable exit strategy is to bring in, uh, to be able to bring in the Palestinian Authority to take over from Israel once Israel controls uh, Gaza. So there will be a military phase and then a second phase of some sort form of Israeli civil administration that manages the needs of the populations and address the post-military conflict uh, situation and then handing over to a, a self-governing body, which is uh, effectively the Palestinian Authority, with significant international backing including finance to rebuild Gaza and basically uh, to allow that Palestinian Authority to govern effectively in Gaza. The point is that this move of handing over power from the Israeli civil administration to the Palestinian Authority depends on the ability of the government of Israel to engage with the Palestinian Authority effectively now and, uh, and, and prepare for the day in which it replaces Israel. Because the, the, some of the ideas I'm hearing from Israel, that the Palestinian Authority will simply come in and take over from Israel. Well, I think yesterday, the Prime Minister of uh, the Palestinian Authority, Muhammad Shtaye, said very clearly, taking over uh, from Israel in Gaza without a pledge that Gaza and the West Bank are a single territorial unit, meaning they're one political unit, and that there will be eventually a Palestinian state, is the equivalent of a Palestinian sitting in the cockpit of an Israeli F-16, meaning the most senior executive person in the Palestinian Authority, except uh, 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 President Abbas, said that they are not doing it in the harshest possible words. And that means that Israel is now, if Israel will move on to destroy the government capabilities of Hamas without an exit strategy, that means that we may be bogged down for a long time in Gaza 
carrying the burden of the rebuilding of Gaza, um, some rebuilding of Gaza, taking care of the population, a very big military, uh, extended supply lines, no fence with the uh, Israeli communities in Israel. And that, to me, is the recipe for a massive overstretch of Israel uh, that will drain our resources. We always have to remember in national security, we have to think about the alternatives. What else could we do with these resources? And I'm concerned that Israel is going down a path of massive uh, uh, investment of resources that will compromise its national security in the longer term. And that's even before we discuss the possibilities of escalation into the West Bank, Lebanon, Egypt and Jordan, compromise of the Abraham Accord. Uh, obviously, already we have tension with Turkey. We're seeing massive backlash around the world against Israel in Western countries and also in other countries as well. So there are a lot of implications for this. So in some, in some ways, what it sounds like you're saying is one can't fight military goals without political goals. And one can't really achieve the political goals without engaging with the Palestinian Authority at this exactly. stage. And that's, and, and that's not happening. And that's so my concern. In order to succeed, Israel needs three things. We need time, we need legitimacy, and we need the money, the resources to do to run the campaign and then to to at least initiate the, the rebuilding of Gaza. And because of the current government in Israel, we can't have any of those because the current government in Israel does not have the political ability, the diplomatic ability to engage with the Palestinian Authority. And paradoxically, <clears throat> the most important partner we could have for a new day and a new reality in Gaza is the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. Uh, but unfortunately, as I said, the current government led by Netanyahu simply doesn't have the capabilities to do that. So you mentioned the concept of overstretch earlier, and and then you also touched a bit on, on the regional aspect. Could you spend a bit of time talking about how Iran and its proxies fit, which who, who are predominantly Shia, I guess Hamas is the one exception to that, in term, not necessarily a proxy, but in terms of Iran's support of them. How, how does a larger Iranian regional strategy fit into um, what happened on October the 7th and what, what we've seen since? Okay, so basically the clash between Iran and Israel is a clash between two very ambitious countries and societies that are sort of prone to this idea of overstretch. First of all, for your listeners, let's define overstretch. Overstretch is a mismatch between a country's geography, meaning the size of the land, demography, how many people we have, the resources that are available for us, meaning the, econom the economy, and the ideology. So when you look at Israel and Iran, both countries are kind of fighting a battle of overstretching each other. So Iran wants, Iran is a country with 60, 80 million people. They want to uh, export the revolution. And therefore, they are engaging with all these wars uh, uh, and global frictions and conflict in the name of the ideology. And that really weakens the Iranian economy and, uh, and overstretches its resources, creates a lot of tension around Iran, and uh, uh, at some point could bring about uh, massive setbacks to the Iranian, Iranian national security. Uh, for example, very soon it could happen 
if the war escalates in a way that drags America into the conflict and eventually America strikes at Iran, this is a massive blow to the Iranian uh, national security. And that, I think, is a feasible scenario. Meanwhile, Israel, Israel, you know, we have about uh, uh, 9 million Israelis, 2 million Arab Israelis, and 7 million Jewish Israelis. We are in control of about three and a half million Palestinians in the West Bank. And now we're taking on Gaza, which is two million people. So you're talking about seven million Israelis controlling in different forms, in three different regimes, 2.3 in Gaza, 3.5 in the West Bank. Of course, the numbers could be debated, but the scale is the same. Altogether, five and a half million people and two million non-Jewish Israelis within Israel. Okay, so seven and seven million. That is the epitome of an overstretch. Israel, at the same time, has um, uh, wants a very big military to be able to have project military force. It has a very large constituency in the economy that doesn't fully participate. This is the ultra-Orthodox community. And it has a very ambitious uh, project of settlement of the West Bank that is extremely expensive and only heightens the tension. So we're looking at Three vanity projects here, if you wish. Uh, you want to use the word vanity very carefully, but three major national projects being pursued at the same time without a sense of uh, limitation of resources. So if Israel goes to Gaza now, bog down, large military in Gaza, uh, uh, that will really compromise its ability to project power and strength in the region uh, in general and specifically uh, against the Iranians. And and how do you understand Iran's current regional strategy as it relates to pre-October the 7th, the, the event itself and, and since then? I'm of the view that uh, uh, what happened on October 7 reflects a confluence of interest between the radical Palestinian fa- faction led by factions, in plural, led by Hamas and Iran. Iran's goal was to compromise the Israel-Saudi deal. Uh, Iran understood the Israel-Saudi deal as an attempt, American-led attempt, to marginalize it in the Middle East and effectively kind of bypass it, creating an axis that goes from uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and Bahrain around from the south side through Israel and Jordan, through the northeastern Mediterranean to Europe. So basically marginalizing or sidelining the axis of Iran-Russia, okay? So you you can see that on the map. So for them, it was uh, a real strategic threat. And they said very clearly, the Israel-Saudi deal will not happen. Khamenei said it in the most clear way. He didn't say it shouldn't happen. He said it will not happen. And he said it just, uh, uh, I think, uh, less than a week before the, the October 7 attack started. Now, that doesn't mean that they knew about the attack, that they were involved. Uh, I'm sorry, they knew about the details of the attack, the timing, the, 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 the format of the attack. But for sure, they were absolutely committed to the idea of undermining and disrupting the uh, Israel-US-Saudi deal. So this is the Iranian side. From the perspective of Hamas, uh, and if you follow their leader, they saw a confluence of three Israeli 
if you wish, attacks on national interests of the Palestinians that could not be ignored. The first is uh, the changing of the status quo on Temple Mount, primarily uh, by the kind of morning stroll that Minister Ben Gvir would take on Temple Mount, but it was a continuous erosion of, uh, of uh, the Palestinian place on Temple Mount and expansion of Israel's place there. The second was continuous and repetitive, uh, I would say, attacks on the, on the, on the conditions of uh, the Palestinian prisoners in the jail, which is, again, uh, a topic that unites all Palestinians. But the most important thing, and they said it over and over again, was the decision by the government of Israel to expand settlements into strategic areas in the West Bank that totally compromised the probability and the prospect of a contiguous Palestinian state. This is critical to understand, uh, and uh, because you can build 50,000 new units in the West Bank in the what is called the settlement blocks, turning um, 100 four-story buildings into 110-story building, and nobody, nobody would really care. And at the same time, you can build 10,000 units in key areas that really compromise the contiguous Palestinian state. So uh, Smotrich, who really understands the West Bank, led this decision, and the Palestinians, who really understand the West Bank, understood what Smotrich was doing. And the leaders of Hamas repeatedly said, we cannot live with this outcome. So if you saw that in the spring, because of a number of uh, decisions by the Israeli government, the temperature was rising in the system. We always have to ask ourselves, uh, countries and societies and organizations build capacity. And they build, and, but the capacity that, can, can, that they build can be deployed you know, at the small scale or at a large scale. In our case, Hamas, October 7th, put all chips on the table. It was all or nothing. They knew there's going to be a big war. There's no, but, no way that they could have imagined that attacking over a front of 40 kilometers with 1,500 uh, 1500 uh, uh, militants, terrorists, not militants, absolute terrorist savages, hitting 40 communities and bases, that that will not lead to a war. And still they went for it. So the question is, why? Why now? And in my view, why now? Is the answer to that question emanates from the confluence of what was going on in Jerusalem, in the jails, and in the settlement. Meaning the Netanyahu government escalated and heated the system. And then Hamas decided to, to, to disrupt the equilibrium which is what happened October 7th. And then Iranian interest came, which, which, and the Iranian interest was to do it in a way, together with Hamas, obviously, I'm not excusing Hamas in any way, but to do it in a way that is absolutely uh, savages, barbaric, and, and therefore leaving Israel no choice but to wage war. They wanted this war. Nobody could have planned uh, this attack without understanding that it will lead to a full-scale war. Um, and that's what happened to them. That's what happened to us. That's what happened to them. Meaning 
Hamas wanted to disrupt the equilibrium. Iran wanted a massive uh, derailing of the Saudi deal. And this confluence of interest led to uh, uh, a barbaric attack that uh, uh, made uh, a large-scale war of Israel against Hamas inevitable. 100% support in Israel for this kind of, of war. <clears throat> there is a debate about the goals of the war now where people like myself are more conservative about what should be the goals of the war, but there's 100% support that there has to be a massive, massive retaliation and change of the status quo in Gaza. Okay, I mean, that, that that's certainly a very... As I'm, as I'm listening to you, Gideon, I'm kind of thinking, um, you know, that this, on the one hand, was probably planned at least a year in advance. But I, I guess what your argument is that the, the specific timing of it and and where I agree, where I absolutely agree with you is it, 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 it the idea that it, it would lead to war, even if, I feel like, even if Hamas would have achieved a quarter 10%. of what they achieved on October 7th, it probably war. would have led to, so um, it's, it's, it's only interesting to hear about the, the, the confluence of things. I, I want to touch on, um, we, I think many of us use the word existential a lot. This is an existential threat. This is not an existential threat. Um, what do you think needs, you know, there, there was, there was a concept here. There was a conception before, before October the 7th, which is Hamas is fundamentalist, but it's also pragmatic and they're more interested in governing and, and when push comes to shove, we can probably afford to have a fundamentalist Islamist organization on our borders pretty within a mile of civilian population centers, not centers, but communities, etc. And we can manage. And that seems to have been blown out of the water over the last few weeks. Um, I'm wondering in terms of what would a situation need to be for both in the South, but also in the North, for civilians to be willing to live so close? And that's even before we get to, before we get to the West Bank. But what would Israel need to achieve in order to facilitate civilians being willing to live so close to um, fundamentalist groups with, with lots of weapons? I, I feel like before October the 7th, it was something that people felt that they were willing to do, but I, I'm, I'm not sure they're willing to do it anymore. First of all, I, I agree um, that uh, um, um, the perception of the threat has totally changed following the, the attack. It's clear. But we have to remember that uh, Israel has been living under tremendous threat for a long time. And we know that uh, there is a difference between uh, uh, capacities and intentions and the willingness to use them. <clears throat> I think that a part of what uh, the conception was that Hamas is deterred. Uh, of course, uh, the other side of the conception was that we are well organized and we are ready to deal with it. So um, in many ways, um, both sides of the conception failed. The first is that Hamas was not deterred. And we spoke about it earlier. There is a reason why Hamas took action now, October 7, 2023. Um, and we will know more and more about these reasons over time, but we are learning already that uh, there was a certain political situation that pushed them into 
taking a, uh, a decision and um, there were all these circumstances that that uh, uh, in a matter of of um, I would say in a few weeks from enduring the summer led to the decision to go to war. This is on the Hamas side. But the other side that collapsed was about the Israeli military. Um, so it, everybody that lived in the area, myself included, I visited the area extensively in the last year, including with Ophir Liebstein, who died in protecting his uh, community in... Uh, of, of Akim. Uh, no, no, Kfar Aza. I think oh, he lived sorry. in Kfar Aza. But, but, uh, uh, um, and he was a friend of mine. And we went along the border and we stood like hundreds of yards from the border looking into Gaza. And actually he and I spoke about all sorts of initiatives to bring peaceful collaboration between the people of Gaza and the people who live in the communities that were destroyed in Be'eri, in, in Kfar Aza, in Shmar Negev, in all of these areas. So there was, um, so there was, the conception was that our side is well organized and our side can handle it. And that part of the conception collapsed as well. Both sides collapsed. Now, Kalev, you and I, we are all students of uh, people who really research this phenomena of fundamental surprise. And we know that the fundamental surprise occurs when there is uh, basically a whole bunch of working assumptions are exposed as irrelevant. Okay? Um, they are, there is an event that shows that they uh, that they had been incubating, I'm sorry, the irrelevancy had been incubating for a while. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the fundamental surprise is on both sides of, of, the, if you, you, of the border, meaning it's not just a Hamas attack, it's also the incompetence of our response. So for people to go back to the front, you need to restore, you need to rebuild, not only the deterrence against Hamas or Hezbollah, but also the trust in our forces and in our government in their, and in their ability to protect the people. And both sides have, have had a severe shock. Now, if we look at the crisis of 1973, we, knew, we know that it took Israel about 12 years to be able to say we're out of the crisis. I mean, I count until 1985. Although... Already in 1977-79, we had the agreement with Egypt and we were beginning to kind of recuperate. So I think we have to acknowledge it's going to be a long process. It's going to take years before we're back. But I believe that at the end of this process, there will be prosperous Israeli communities on the border of Gaza. Okay. This um, from your... From your uh, from your mouth to God's ears, and in the north, I'd add as well, which one hundred percent build back better. That's what's going to happen there. Determined people are going to sit there. I think it's the most beautiful part of Israel to me. I love going there. I went there a lot. Um, the people there are authentic, salt of the land people. They are people who are, you know, holding the gun in the sense of willing to fight for the country and for the community. They are people of peace. There were the leaders of the peace movement in Israel, especially when it came to Gaza. A lot of them were there. And, and I think that uh, this kind of unique and very entrepreneurial, very kind of hard-nosed people, they are very practical and pragmatic. I love being there, and I'm confident that they are coming back. And this tragedy 
will become a chapter in their in the in the story of the greatness of their communities and that will happen within this decade it's not happening tomorrow but it will be within a decade a few years from now all of your listeners could come there and you they'll be blown away but by what we will have built there uh, um, after this horrible event on October 7th just one last question Gideon again in some ways it's it may seem a bit jarring to speak about peace in such a context and 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 I don't take that lightly but I, I do want to spend a, one question on on your on your book which again I'd very much recommend to anyone who is interested both in the history of Israeli Palestinian peacemaking and potentially in the future as well um I thought one of your most interesting arguments was that the Oslo paradigm revolves around kind of all or nothing. So unless we can get an agreement on one big agreement on Jerusalem and refugees and settlements, uh, territory, security, etc., we have nothing. And there's an alternative paradigm, which is based around the roadmap, which is the idea of uh, more temporary steps, a Palestinian state and provisional borders before you get to Final status. Now, obviously, we're we're in the middle, we're in the midst now of a very brutal war against a very terrible enemy. You've already talked about potentially what may need to happen the day after with the Palestinian Authority. Could you just expand a little bit on those kind of historically, those two paradigms and, and how the roadmap one may be more relevant going right. forward than the so traditional the Oslo ar- one? The architecture of the Oslo process called for having a comprehensive agreement on permanent status, dealing with all of the outstanding issues um, between us and the Palestinians, and effectively doing three things. Resolving all the issues of the past conflicts, like refugees, borders, etc. Bringing into being a Palestinian state, that's the second thing. And then outlining the future relations between that state and Israel. Altogether, dealing with the past, establishing a state, future relations in one agreement makes it like an incredibly monumental political endeavor, which I was at the center of. Yes, I was uh, the most junior and youngest member of the team, but I was at the center of that of that event. And I can tell you firsthand, which is what I do in my book, I, I explain the complexity and it's incredibly complex enterprise. So uh, the philosophy of Oslo, first agreement, then statehood. Then came the roadmap of 2003 by President Bush and the Quartet and introduced a whole other logic, which is first we're going to have a state and then that state is going to solve its issues with Israel over time. And I landed on the conclusion, which I explain uh, in the book, that uh, we're better off with the roadmap. We're better off with a phased approach that uh, first brings into being a Palestinian state in provisional borders and limited powers, and then kind of over time creates permanent status. That was also the approach that allowed the Camp David Accords of 1978 to come into being. Those of you, your listeners who know the history, they know that uh, there were many, primarily the Americans and the Carter administration, that wanted a comprehensive agreement to resolve all of the Israeli-Arab conflict. And Sadat said no. I want a bilateral agreement with Israel because if I want to solve everything, I'll have nothing. So the logic of phased approach to peace building has been there from the beginning, from 1971-72 before the 1973 war, 
certainly from 1974 all the way uh, until today. Now, uh, I want to conclude with the issue of peace, because one of the things that I say in the book is that Israel and the Zionist movement, we have to aspire for peace, because our victory is peace. And why? Because peace reflects an acceptance by the societies and the countries around us in the legitimacy of the right of the Jewish people to self-determination in the land of Israel. If there is no peace, then it actually means that there is obviously conflict, which means that there is a challenge to the existence of Israel. Now, if you look at the space of the state of Israel, the border with Egypt is already bilaterally agreed and internationally recognized. The border with Jordan, except in the West Bank, bilaterally agreed, internationally recognized. The border with Lebanon, internationally recognized and largely bilaterally agreed, except, except 13 points there that have some dispute, but it's a limited dispute. We have the issue of Syria still open in the Golan and the, uh, uh, the, the West Bank. Note that when uh, Prime Minister Sharon unilaterally withdrew from Gaza, he did so to the June 4th, 1967 lines around Gaza. And that was a very important statement, which means that the international boundaries of Gaza, that the boundary of Gaza is internationally recognized. Hamas may not accept it, but or um, but it's internationally recognized. So really, if we could have had a border with the Palestinians in the West Bank, we would have what I call finalized the project, the Zionist project that began in 1880 and would have been finished in the year 2000 or you know may, hopefully at some point in the future of establishing a space on the face of this earth where the Jewish people have the right to self-determination. Meaning, the paradox of Zionism is that the ultimate success of all of our warring, waging wars and diplomacy is peace. We are not here for military victory. We are here ultimately to achieve peace, which is recognition in our right to exist in that area. And by the way, that is why Iran and Hamas, and Hezbollah are so intent on undermining uh, Israel's legitimacy in the region and any peace treaty between us and the Palestinians. And that's the sort of the huge clash of forces that we're seeing in, the, in this conflict now, but also historically. So at the end of the day, to conclude, if the ultimate success of Zionism will be peace. Okay, thank you, Giddy. That's a, that's a really interesting uh, final point. Um, We'd love to continue the conversation at some stage in the future, maybe kind of more, more focus on uh, the book rather than the current situation. But yeah. uh, it was a super interesting analysis, uh, as always, Giddies. Thank you for your time. And we look forward to continuing the conversation in the future. Thank, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. would love to be back. And, uh, you know, as we say, may we have peace in our time. Exactly.